2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. Open up your Bibles. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Messiah who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven, and I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast of my infirmities, that the power of Messiah may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Messiah's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Thank you, Tracy. Last Shabbat, Rabbi David uh, challenged us. I wasn't here, but that's what uh, I was told. Um, to walk after the Spirit. And you know, I have uh, been a follower of Yeshua for about 50 years. And during all that time, I have rarely heard anything described about what it means to walk after the Spirit. I don't know how many of you have heard sermons, teachings, etc. about walking after the Spirit. Okay, well, that's, that's helpful, some of us. Um, and part of the picture is we, we, get, um, we get pushed either to one ditch or the other ditch. One ditch is um, what I would call non-charismatic, the folks who are somewhat allergic to anything having to do with the spirit. Um, and then the other folks are charismatic, again, quotation marks, um, since we are all followers of Yeshua and we're all committed uh, to following him by the power of the Spirit, I hope, um, and even in charismatic circles, um, there's a great deal of discussion about the power of the Spirit, but it's primarily related to gifts and expression of gifts and manifestation within a, a, a worship service. Um, and so the obvious question is, how is it that you walk after the Spirit? Uh, none of us have a rule book. Well, we do have a rule book, um, but it doesn't have specific listing of what you do in a particular case, you know, where you're confronted with a situation and you go to... Section A, paragraph uh, B, uh, line 15, etc. And so, how do you 
walk after the Spirit. And it seems to me that as, as I read Scripture, what comes to mind is a very basic reality, and that is that you and I bring nothing to the table, to God's table. Let me say that again. You and I bring nothing to God's table. Now, I know that sounds like a very extreme kind of a statement. Um, We are in God's image, and each of us has been gifted, and we have things that we want to give and do give. However, reality is, what Yeshua tells us in, in John 15, remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do a couple of things. Absolutely zero. So the question is, what does that mean? Do, do we walk around like robots and say, okay, Lord, um, what is the next step that I take? Do I turn to the left? Do I turn to the right? Do I flip backwards? And um, it's hard for us to get our arms around what the Word of God means by walking after the Spirit. And it's something that is very um, stated very emphatically as something we need to do because we either follow after God's Spirit or we follow after the flesh, not this kind of flesh, but our sinful nature. And part of the picture then is that anything that proceeds from us, our power, our wisdom, our agenda, is to one degree or another tainted. It's polluted, it's marinated by sin. And so we can either emphasize that or we take the other approach, which means we come in absolute humility and say, God, either you do it or else it's not going to get done. And this is so foreign to so many of us because typically we hear wonderful teachings, wonderful messages from the Word of God telling us, here is what the Bible says, now go after them, go do it. Which is half the story. The full story is, you go do it, but you do it by the power of the Spirit. Because you and I don't have what it takes. And if you are someone who is committed to following Yeshua, and pursuing Him wholeheartedly, what God will do inevitably is that He will hold up a mirror and say to you, You know, you really don't have what it takes. And that is so unbelievably humbling. Because there's every part of us that screams and says, yes, I can, yes, I can. You know, like our, um, I was going to say beloved president, but uh, let me rephrase that. Um, In his um, inaugural speech or candidate speech, I don't remember which. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Biblically is, no, we can't. And 
What the Lord delights in, if we're willing to learn, is he gives us all kinds of lessons because we don't typically get it the first time. I don't. Maybe you folks do. Um, And so this conference that I attended this past week was very much like that. You know, I don't know if you've been to uh, conferences, Messianic or otherwise, where you, A, um, you sit too long, um, you eat too much, you don't get exercise, and you don't get enough sleep, and you get too much coffee. (laughs) So by the end of the conference, uh, you're somewhat pie-eyed, you know, kind of drooping. And... uh, at least for me, that's why I want to say, okay, Lord, please don't do anything intense. Uh, l- let me just kind of slink away and, and maybe find a place where I can veg. Uh, and this week, the Lord, in his sense of humor, decided to crank up the volume just at that point. Uh, since he's God, he can do what he wants to, Right? And I got a call at the conference from a friend of mine, a fellow by the name of Bill Fay, who is evangelist, an evangelist of the good kind, um, who has been reaching out to Jewish people off and on. And he calls me whenever he's made contact because I'm his Jewish answer man, so to speak. And he had made friends with a fellow in Florida. Uh, they become good friends. And um, Gary was very interested about having a relationship with God, but he asked Bill this basic question, will I stop being Jewish? So what came to Bill's mind is to call me, which he did. And when I came back, again, uh, I said, okay, Lord, I don't have what it takes. It's going to have to be you. And I called him, we had a good conversation, we talked about what it means to to be Jewish, what it means to have challenging children uh, read difficult, because he has a difficult child. And at some point he asked me, how do I enter into a relationship with the Lord? He could have knocked me over with a feather. And uh, so I led him in a basic prayer of repentance and acceptance of Yeshua, and I got off the phone, and I said, okay, Lord, what just happened? I mean, I know the answer is biblically, um, because the Word of God says that when you embrace Yeshua, you become a son or daughter of God. I understand that here, but I've prayed with some folks, and it seemed like nothing stuck. Well, I got a call the next morning, Uh, for my friend Bill, and he said that Gary had slept like a baby for the first time in a long time, and uh, and that it stuck. It it, it really is part of who he is. I sent him a Bible, and by the way, there's a nice new translation, Messianic version, uh, called Tree of Life Version, and by the way, if you have, this is off to the side, but uh, tangent, if you have the complete Jewish Bible, it's a good translation, paraphrase, but unless you speak Hebrew, you probably break your teeth on all the Hebrew names. Uh, this one is a little simpler, and furthermore, um, our beloved sister, Elaine, uh, 
has been involved in the translation process of this. Uh, so I would encourage you to get it. It's, it's come out. Uh, good, good translation. Anyways, I sent him that. And my sense, folks, and please hear me, my sense is that there's more coming. There's more coming. Uh, we have been praying and waiting with patient faith. Um, and a couple of scriptures came to mind, just kind of jumped out at me. You know how it is when the Word of God, you read the Word of God, and something pops out, and you say, oh, okay, God, I think you're talking to me. And I can hear you now. Isaiah 55, 13, instead of the thorn bush will grow the pine tree, and instead of the briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be to the Lord's renown for an everlasting sign which will not be destroyed. God can turn things around to make, to bring about productivity. And furthermore, Yeshua tells us that we are expected to be productive. This is to my Father's glory, in John 15, that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to, me, to be my disciples. Now, he doesn't spell out exactly what he means by that, but the point is that following Yeshua does not mean that we are to be static. We're going to sit on our posteriors and, um, and do nothing. That's not God's plan for us. Can you say amen to that? So part of the picture, a huge part of the picture, is simply understanding that if that is to happen, if we're to be productive, it is not because we are cute and clever and have all kinds of power and all kinds of gifts and, and all kinds of energy. It is because, actually, we're weak. And we get the fact that we're weak that God's power is at work in us and we learn that and we appreciate it and that's when we begin to be productive. But until we get that, we kind of bang our head against the wall a whole bunch of times. Been there, done that. I think a few of us have. Until we finally get the fact that it's not about us. The message paraphrase puts it this way in 1 Corinthians. Take a good look, friends, at who you were when you were called into this life. I don't see many of the brightest and best among you. This is, by the way, no slam on anybody here. Uh, not many influential, not many from high society family. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits? He chose these nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies. This is 1 Corinthians one twenty six. And so, what we consider to be our strengths are, all, are in fact our weaknesses unless we learn to take those perceived strengths and lay them at the Lord and say, Lord, here is who I am. Take what you have given me and use it. Because otherwise, it will be weakness because I will foolishly be trying to invest that in my own power and my own wisdom, my own smarts, so to speak. 
And this is what Paul is wrestling with, with a group of Greek um, cultured, philosophically oriented uh, Gentile believers who were very easily influenced by that which is smooth and slick and, and uh, very articulate. Um, and from Paul's own description, he was probably a short little Jew who was not very, very impressive. And these Corinthians were looking for someone who was big, bold, red, and, and who can spin a yarn and, and talk to them. And Paul was about one thing. He was about Yeshua. He was Johnny One Note. Uh, every conversation he would have would come back to the resurrection of Yeshua. And you had these philosophers who wanted to go off and explore truth and goodness and beauty and peace. Um, you know, just like folks used to do in the 60s and 70s when they were on chemicals that were not currently in the body. Um, and Paul is having a hard time with these guys. You know, what's bizarre is that he was a, their spiritual father and that it seemed like along come these guys who try to upstage him and tell the Corinthians and the Galatians and the Philippians that Paul was basically a nobody but that they should listen to him because they have the, the full version of the truth and Paul um, was, was not what they consider to be a super apostle. So what's odd here, if you read these chapters, there are four chapters, chapters chapter 10, 11, 12, and 13, here in 2 Corinthians, all of which deal with Paul's defense of his apostolic authority. Now, if we didn't know better, if it was you and I, we would say, uh, Chaim has an ego issue. Um, why do you think Paul would have to devote so much time to defense of his apostolic authority? Think of it. If they were, if these guys were able to pull the carpet from under him, in a sense, and minimize his apostolic authority, do you think these Corinthians would pay attention to anything that he would say? Why would they? He would just be another babbling individual. Uh, if, on the other hand, they remember and grasp the fact that he was Shaul, Paul, Saul, um, with authority from God to speak the word of God, then they would sit up and pay, uh, pay attention. And so that's why he spends so much time addressing this issue. And part of what he says to them is, look, if anybody had reason to brag, I had all kinds of reason to brag. I was raised and given Roman citizenship. I was trained under Gamaliel, who was one of the head rabbis. And furthermore, what he says in, in the book of Acts, which we need to, to remember, Paul describes himself as currently being a Pharisee. This is Acts uh, 23, 6. Paul, in the middle of the Sanhedrin, said, My brothers, 
I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. And the way it's put in the Greek is, is very strong. I really am a Pharisee. He doesn't say, I used to be a Pharisee. I currently am a Pharisee. So he had great credentials as a Jew. He had great credentials as, as a follower of Yeshua, as, as, a, uh, as his representative, his ambassador. He began all kinds of um, congregations and hundreds of people came to the kingdom through him. All kinds of power. Um, people were healed. People, uh, at least one person rose from the dead and God was working big time through Paul in some of the darkest places in the Roman Empire, such as Ephesus, where there was a flourishing of the cult of Diana and a flourishing of the occult. And that's where God did all kinds of amazing things through Paul. And so this is part of what he... He was saying to them, if anybody could brag, I could. And part of what he's saying, which leads, leads us to our chapter, is the fact that in our language he says, and oh, by the way, I could also brag on the fact that I had a near-death experience. Now, he doesn't use that language but you look at what he says, and it's very much like the, let me rephrase it. It reminds us, in some ways, of the near-death experience stories that are coming out. I'm sure you've heard of Heaven is for Real. Um, the story of a young boy, four-year-old boy, um, who experienced heaven during surgery. And he is looking down and and he's seeing the doctor, his mother, um, and uh, his father yelling at God, and he's seeing all that, and at some point he comes back to life and tells a story. Um, subjective experiences is something that God alone can sift and evaluate. But apparently what takes place with Paul is something similar. We don't understand all the details, but let's just work through some of that. He says in, in verse 2, uh, I know a man in Messiah who 14 years ago was caught up in the, the third heaven. Um, and then a couple of verses later, he says that this man was caught up to paradise, clearly referring to himself. And by the way, if you know something about Jewish um, understanding of heaven in those days, uh, and depending on where you read, it's either there were seven levels of heaven uh, or three levels of heaven. I'm going to stick with the three for now. Uh, one obviously being the atmosphere, the second one being uh, space, outer space, and then the third one, being the presence of God. And um, it's pretty clear that Paul is saying that he was somehow caught up to paradise, the place of the righteous dead and, and where, where the presence of God dwells. And he hears 
things that are inexpressible. In other words, things uh, either that you can't put in words or else that you really don't want to put in words because uh, they're kadosh, they're holy. You don't want to um, write a book or sell the rights and get royalties and do that kind of stuff. Uh, we don't quite know where that is. Um, one possibility is when he was stoned and left dead, uh, then got up and, and continued, although that may not fit the chronology. Uh, the truth is, Paul suffered all kinds of stuff. You know, in Second uh, Corinthians chapter... Um, chapter 11, chapter 10, excuse me, he talks about all the stuff that he was involved with. Um, the suffering he endured. Five times he received, yes, it is uh, 2 Corinthians 11. Five times he received 40 lashes minus one in the synagogue. Now, we don't usually think of the synagogue as being a place where people get whipped. So you can understand that this is pretty bad. Why 40 minus one? Well, 40 is one of the uh, symbolic numbers in scripture, 40 days and 40 nights when Moses was up. Uh, why 40 minus one? Well, if you give the, four fu the full 40, it would seem that you are being extreme. Um, sort of uh, cruel and unusual punishment. So you have to subtract one and give 39 instead of 40. Typical of, of how the Pharisees and the rabbis interpreted things. Uh, that wasn't enough. He was beaten three times with rods, probably with Romans. He was stoned. Um, he was shipwrecked three times. He spent a day and a night the open sea, and so on and so forth. Um, any of those could have been a near-death experience. They probably would have been a near-death experience for me. But in a sense, the, the precise uh, circumstance doesn't really matter. What Paul is saying, at some point, I was somehow uh, zapped and brought into the presence of God. Our understanding is that it was probably something very brief. It's apparently not like the kind of vision that John had while he was in, on the island of Patmos where he had this all, all a series of these uh, awesome kinds of uh, visions. But Paul somehow comes, comes, is beamed back and, and he's... You know how it is when, when you experience something unusual and uh, you kind of shake your head and you walk on not quite sure how to uh, interpret it? Have you ever experienced something like that? You know, in Israel, my wife and I had all kinds of situations like that where we shook our head and said, okay, Lord, um, you're the navigator and the pilot here. But the kind of experiences that Paul 
had were incredible. And uh, you know how it is for us when, when God does something incredible in our life. We want to go and broadcast to everybody and their mother, which is fine to a point, but sometimes we don't understand that there are times when God wants us to sit and be quiet and let him uh, review the tapes with us and say, okay, let me explain to you just what took place here. And let me tell you what it is that I want you to say, what it is that I don't want you to say, rather than <laughs> rattling. So even here, he doesn't say exactly what he saw. But what he does say is that this could have given him grounds for, for pride. And folks, at any given time, you know, we kind of vacillate from, from one extreme to the other, what I like to call a ditch to the other. Either we feel good about ourselves and say, wow, that was pretty amazing. I, I, I really did that. Or else we go to the other extreme that basically says, you know, my bad. I really screwed up here. Both of those folks are extremes. Why? Because in neither one of those do we focus on God. In both of those, the focus and the emphasis is on us. That where we want to be is not in this one or this one, but eyes on who the Lord is. And part of reality for all of us is that there are times when we feel weak. You know, it's either because of sickness or lack of sleep or stress. I think all of us are not strangers to stress, right? You look at me as if this guy is the only one who is ever stressed. Um, we feel weak. And so part of what Paul wants to tell us is that God rolls up his sleeves and gets to work in a big, in a big way just when we are at our point of weakness. So he continues. You know, I could have really... Uh, bragged about this experience but God knows that I have a stupid part stupid part of the brain that I would have been sorely tempted to get up and you know as I'm traveling from place to place talking to people I could have said wow I had a near death experience and the Lord says to him no you're not going to say anything and furthermore let me make sure you're not going to say anything I'm going to give you a thorn in the flesh now, you know, folks, like it is with other parts of Scripture that are ambiguous, that we don't really understand, that's where people write books and give teachings, you know, and, and the things that are really plain, nobody wants to, to talk about and write anything because it's not exciting, but it is the stuff that is a little ambiguous that we rush to, to crank out all kinds of opinions. So... Here goes with mine. Um, one possibility, and that's really all it is, is the fact that the thorn in the flesh was some kind of physical problem, possibly with 
a problem with his eyes. Why do I say that? Well, at the end of the book of, of uh, Galatians, uh, he signs off. You know, he has a, um, uh, a menuensis, a secretary who writes most uh, most of the letter, and then to let them know that he's part of the process, he scribbles something in his own ha- handwriting and says the following: "Look with what large letters I'm writing." Now think about it. Why would the guy have to write something in large letters? Because he's having a hard time seeing. Those of us who have good eyesight would scribble, you know, in in something that would require magnifying glass. So that's one possibility. The other one is that um, he could have been severely persecuted, and apparently something took place in Ephesus. That was horrible. We don't know exactly what it is, but Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, it was so bad that I despaired of life. Now, this is Mr. Mack Truck or Mr. Timex who takes a lick and keeps on ticking. (laughs) He says in 2 Corinthians 1, things got so bad and Satan was on me, breathing down my neck to such an extent that I was ready to say, God, beam me up. We don't know, again, physical problem, persecution, not sure. And so he, he quetches, he comes to the Lord, Lord, you see what's going on? Um, I'm hampered, I'm handicapped. And the Lord listens and says, chill. My grace is sufficient for you. Now, a couple of thoughts of what that means. First of all, grace here is not chesed. It's not God's covenant, loyal love. Although it obviously flows out of God's love for Paul. Grace in, in, in these letters that Paul writes has to do with special supernatural ability that God gives Paul to do things that nobody else is able to do in order to advance the kingdom. Not advance Paul, advance the kingdom. And obviously, the best example of that, he says um, in Ephesians 3, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me. I became a servant of this good news by the gift of God's grace. Um... Although I'm less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Messiah. So what Paul is saying is the Lord is saying to him, Paul, somehow I will see to it that you have what you need in order to continue. And sufficient, by the way, has the idea of something that is strong. In other words, the grace that I'm going to give you is going to is going to hold you up so that you don't fall to pieces. For my power is made perfect in weakness. By the way, did you notice made perfect means not Paul, you're going to be the one who's going to perfect things. But I am going to complete the picture and I'm going to do it on an ongoing basis. In other words, it's a process. 
You don't get it all at once. For all of us, it takes a number of different passes where we get it once and it kind of get it in, goes out, or sometimes flies over the head and we barely try to capture it and it flies away. And the Lord is merciful to see to it that it comes and we're able to get it, digest it, appropriate it, put it to practice. My, my strength, my power, dunamis, koach in Hebrew, um, it's not about the ability for me to do what I want to do. Power in Scripture is always connected with the capacity to do what God wants us to do. Amen. Let me say that again. Power in Scripture is always something that is given to us so that we can do God's program, God's agenda, God's strategy, not what we think is wonderful and, and awesome. Now, how on earth do you, do, you, do you digest all of this? None of us likes the notion of weakness and this word weakness appears here a whole bunch of times. And if you don't like it, it pokes you in the eye again and again and again and again. Our culture doesn't believe in weakness. What does our culture believe in? The silly motto that we hear from time to time, believe in yourself. Mm. Well, I, I think I understand the notion that you have to have self-confidence but there, there's no shame in admitting the fact that without God, we're like a power tool that has no power. The pieces are there, but there's no power to connect and make it work. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected or completed in your weakness. Again, that's a matter of only coming about as we learn to embrace that because if we reject this basic message of Scripture, which by the way is found not only here, but throughout Scripture, Amen. that the men and women of God were able to do great things not because they were super people, but because they were empowered by the Spirit of God to carry out and do what God had for them to do. So, it's been, at least for me, the kind of week where the Lord's been giving me some additional lessons on strength and weakness. And Thursday, Rabbi David and I were invited to speak before a Chavurah at Temple Emmanuel, which is the largest reform temple uh, in Denver. And this came out of nowhere. Obviously, we know where it came from. And I was incredibly intrigued by the fact that about 30 years before, 
My father was also invited to speak at a Chavurah at Temple Emmanuel. And they specifically asked that we come and talk about Messianic Judaism. Um, and, and it was, again, one of these things where you shake your head and you say, okay, this had to be God. Um, they were going through a series of discussion uh, a week, several weeks before they had an imam come and talk to them about uh, uh, Islam. So why not have someone talk about Messianic Judaism? <laughs> you know, uh, what could be bad about it, right? The Irgun. Uh, yeah, I am not sure I understand the connection, but so. Yeah, yeah, they could have invited the Irgun, um, and so we came, absolutely no false expectation of any kind, and Rabbi David talked about his experience, how he came to know Yeshua, and then I spoke about my experience and my background and so on. And then they fired all kinds of questions. And what was intriguing, folks, is we had the opportunity to present to them a Jewish Yeshua. Because they came with all these uh, twisted, perverted, popular notions of who Yeshua was, is. And, um, you know, for instance, the, the, the virgin birth, uh, Jewish spokespeople make that connection with Zeus um, uh, having, having intercourse with a young maiden. Um, nothing Jewish about it until we explain to them that many of the great births that took place in Scripture were supernatural. Amen. Jewish. They wanted to know about the deity of Yeshua. That can also break everybody's teeth um, and, and we shared with them the fact that God came down sat with Abraham um, had a hamburger and uh, a cheeseburger actually had a cheeseburger with Abraham and uh, and, then, and then it becomes very clear that it is God Almighty himself talking to Abraham so that didn't come from some Christian book. It came from, from the Torah. Then, of course, they had this notion that the New Testament is a Gentile book until we talked about the book of Matthew with the genealogy Abraham begat, so-and-so begat, and how that in Luke, Yeshua got up and read from the, the prophets like, uh, like we do from the Torah. And so at the end of the evening we clearly felt that this was a God event. You know how it is? Uh, you have facts, you have information, you have the tools, you, you are well equipped with information and statistics and so on, and either you do it by the flesh, your own power, your own smarts, in which case the end result is zip, or else you do it by the power of the Spirit, in which case the result is 
kingdom fruit. Why? Because you learn to understand that you do not lean on your own understanding. You don't lean on the power of the flesh, your own natural instincts and, and smarts and, and energy and charisma. But you depend on the charisma, the power that comes and the leading that comes from the Spirit of God. And that, folks, is just one example what it means to follow after, to walk after the Spirit. I sincerely hope that as, as we continue, and I, I believe that, that this is something the Lord wants us to pursue, it's very timely for us, that as we continue to pursue that, as the Lord leads, that the Lord will give you specific instances in your own life of what it means to walk after the Spirit. So that you don't lean on yourself and you don't have this 800-pound gorilla on you to make things happen. But you learn to lay that aside and say, God, I don't have what it takes. I want to be holy. I'm not. And either you bring that about or it's not going to happen. And you learn to invite the Lord into the process depending on the power of the Spirit to make the power tool really powerful and the discernment to do what God wants you to do and do it in His time and His manner. We all crave strength but to do that we have to learn to value weakness. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, for your infinite mercy for each one of us. Thank you, Lord, that you know us, you know our foolishness, the uh, lies that we have embraced about our need to make things happen. Thank you, Lord God, that you set us free. And that you're able, Lord God, to expose the lies and and show us the truth, the simple truth of your word, that it is all about you. Father God, we pray that for each one of us, that would become a practical reality, Lord, that in each of us, that you will give us these additional lessons and show us, Lord God, what that looks like. And give us hearts, Lord God, that are eager to follow you. Because that's where we want to go, Lord. We ask that you will receive much honor and glory in our life. In the name of Yeshua. Amen.